You're listening to the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast, recorded in the studio of Maine Magazine at 75 Market Street, Portland, Maine. Download past shows and become a podcast subscriber of Dr. Lisa Belial on iTunes. See the Dr. Lisa website or Facebook page for details. Here are some highlights from this week's program. It's terrifying. It is really terrifying. And I think that everybody is terrified of Alzheimer's, you know, especially if we've seen it happen to a family member. And I think what's really scary is knowing what a large percentage of the American population is going to come down with it. I mean, if you live above, older than 85, there's a one in three chance you are going to get dementia of some kind. There isn't a solution. There is a process that you have to go through and hope for the best ending. The Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast is made possible with the support of the following generous sponsors. Maine Magazine, Marcy Booth of Booth, Maine, Apothecary by Design, Premier Sports Health, a division of Black Bear Medical, Sea Bags, Mike LePage and Beth Franklin of Remax Heritage, Ted Carter, Inspired Landscapes, and Tom Shepard of Shepard Financial. This is Dr. Lisa Belial, and you are listening to the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast, show number 114, Alzheimer's, airing for the first time on Sunday, November 17, 2013. Today's guests include Dr. Tess Gerritsen, best-selling author and former physician, and Leon Duff, volunteer and board member of the Hospice of the Waterville area. What does it mean to lose one's mind, to become someone unrecognizable to our loved ones and peers? Today's guests, unfortunately, have witnessed this scenario firsthand. They have seen family members transformed by the brain illness Alzheimer's. As individuals who have relied heavily on their own brains in creating a livelihood for themselves, They offer compelling perspectives on what it means when that is no longer possible. We hope that we are able to give your mind something to ponder as we speak with Tess Gerritsen and Leon Duff about Alzheimer's. Thank you for joining us. Maine has many good doctors and many good writers living in um, amongst its borders, within its borders, I should say. And some people happen to be both, not many, but some. And one of them is the individual we have sitting across the microphone from us today. And this is Dr. Tess Gerritsen, who is both a physician and also a best-selling, internationally known author. We're very privileged to have you in the studio with us today. I'm very happy to be here. I've been, um, as I was saying to you before we got on the air, I've been listening to one of your most recent books from the Rizzoli and Isles series, and it just strikes me that it must be an interesting world that you live within, always kind of creating what's going to go next on the page. I think it it comes from uh, a history of ch- my childhood history of loving horror films. My mother used to take me to many, many horror films because that was her favorite kind of movie. Uh, and I think I grew up thinking that there is a dark side to everything. Um, it means that every morning when I wake up, I think, what's the worst that could happen today? <laughs> and I, I think that that's also why my children have... Uh, learned to be cautious uh, about life, because mom is always saying, what's the worst that could happen? 
you dedicated this most recent book that I've been listening to um, to your mother, and it really is uh, your experience with your mother most recently that has, I guess, spurred you to talk about this very serious subject of Alzheimer's. Yeah, it was my father, um, primarily. Uh, My dad was in his early 60s when we began to realize something was wrong. Uh, He was having trouble finding his way home. He was having trouble driving. He would ask the same questions over and over, uh, and it progressed very rapidly. Uh, He's the only one in our family that I'm aware of who came down with Alzheimer's, Uh, but we knew early on that this was going to be bad. Um, He fell apart pretty much in San Diego. He lives on the other coast. So um, I was spared the worst of having to deal with it. But his sister, my aunt, was amazing. She um, was able to hire people to stay with him. My father never had to leave his house. He stayed in his house until he died. And uh, I mean, of all the experiences of Alzheimer's, I feel very fortunate that I had such help. But I'm thinking about all these people in the country who don't have that help, who are struggling with this every day in their own homes. So how did this impact your mother then? Well, my mother had uh, divorced my father earlier on, uh, so she was not involved. Uh, She moved in (laughs) close to us in Maine. But then again, we saw dementia in her as well. Not Alzheimer's dementia. I I, I think that hers was probably more cardiovascular than anything else. But yes, I I have two parents who uh, died with dementia. That would be an interesting thing, you know, also being a physician and knowing, you know, if you have two parents that have this very disabling disease, the likelihood that you could be yourself someday afflicted with this is probably fairly high. It's It's terrifying. It is really terrifying. And I think that everybody is terrified of Alzheimer's, you know, especially if we've seen it happen to a family member. And I think what's really scary is knowing what a large percentage of the American population is going to come down with it. I mean, if you live above, older than 85, there's a one in three chance you are going to get dementia of some kind. Um, and you could be as healthy as a horse. You could, you could walk. I mean, my father, when he died, he could walk for miles without getting short of breath. He had a, he had a perfect machine as a body, but there was no computer directing it. As a physician and an author who is always thinking, like, what's the worst that could happen? Does this, is this thought into your mind that what's the worst that could happen to you? Absolutely. Um, and every little thing, like I can't remember a word, it sets off this whole chain of, oh, my God, this is the beginning. This is, this is Alzheimer's uh, about, to, about to blossom. Um, and I do so many things that, you know, we're told to do to prevent this. I exercise, I drink red wine, I get lots of sleep, I eat fresh vegetables, but no matter what you do, some people are going to be struck down with it. And it makes me, I think, more committed than ever to doing something for research. Um, You know, we spend, what, half a $200 billion a year in this country um, dealing with Alzheimer's among Americans. And we're looking at, in the year 2050, having that increase five times as the population gets older. And yet we're spending so little on research. Um, The one thing that's actually killing Americans, not Al-Qaeda, it's not Al-Qaeda who's actually killing Americans, it's Alzheimer's. It's all these other things that we are not devoting our resources to. Which is interesting because we know that we're an aging population, and even in Maine we especially know that we're an aging population, and this is one of these diseases that typically occurs um, amongst that population. Yes, yes, and I was uh, reading something from the Alzheimer's Association uh, that of the top 
uh, six things that kill Americans. Alzheimer's is the one disease that we, we don't have any prevention for. We don't have any treatment for. It's just increasing. Every other illness in the top six uh, has shown improvement over the last 10 years, but Alzheimer's has gone the other way. You obviously had a slightly different family situation, um, and as you said, your your aunt helped take care of your father, and you felt very fortunate in that way. You also had your mother move in close to where you were, so there was a lot of family support, but a lot of families don't, many families don't have that. So is the work that you're doing with Alzheimer's research, is that also, are you also hoping to create awareness so that families who don't have that type of support, they might be able to reach out and find the kind of support that they need? I think I have a great, you know, what I have is incredible sympathy for everybody who's dealing with this, both the patients and the families. Um, My focus is really on prevention, on future treatment, on the basic science that should be working into this so that we don't have to deal with this anymore. Um, By the time you are you're showing signs of Alzheimer's, it's, it's, it's too late. You know, there's nothing you can do to prevent it. I would love for us to get ahead of that as a, as a country. Um, I, I, you know, I was, I was um, in high school when we put a first, our first man on the moon. I remember John Kennedy saying, you know, this is our next mission. We are going to, we are going to go to space and we're going to land on the moon. Um, why couldn't we be doing that with something that is affecting so much uh, of America, and also that's going to bankrupt us. It seems like it's penny wise to start putting money into research now to just, you know, at least when people get to 85, um, have them still be productive, have them not depend on their families and so many other resources. That's, you know, it makes me angry. <laughs> the truth is I'm, I'm very angry with the way our tax dollars are spent, how we spend them so much on battleships that we may not ever use, on, on you know, all these transport planes and these bombers that we are not using, um, and they are not helping Americans. Uh, what's really what's really destroying us right now is coming from within, and that's that's disease, that's illness, that's the stresses that go into taking care of of elderly uh, people with dementia. Do you think that part of that, part of the reason that we spend so much on these external things is it's easier to deal with something that's outside of us than something that might be inside of us? I would say the reason we're spending so much money on it is lobbyists. I think the defense industry has some incredible and you know amazing lobbyists, and uh, I think they consider this as being part of their jobs program. Well, I think that scientists need a jobs program. I think we should be putting that money into people who are um, directly helping Americans. Your books focus on um, well, crime, mystery, darkness. How are you able to uh, simultaneously be writing about sort of the things that go bump in the night, and also maintain a sense of hope about the future of Alzheimer's research? Well, the things that go bump in the night are, I think it's my anxieties getting putting getting put on the page. Um, I sleep very well. I don't get, if I have a nightmare, I tend to use that in a book. In fact, I'm, I, as I say, I'm one of the few people who welcomes nightmares because they end up being productive. Uh, but I think that I am able to get my fears out on the page, and that is probably very healthy. In fact, um, I would say that the least violent, most um, most pacifistic people are crime writers who write horrifying crimes on on the page. Uh, we get out our aggressions there. Um, but when I, I think when I fear about what I fear about Alzheimer's is that that's a that's a real world fear. That's that's something that is I see all around me, and I 
I never want to write about that. In fact, if you pick up a book, uh, a thriller novel, you'll almost never see it address the subject of Alzheimer's. Writers don't want to write about it. Readers don't want to read about it because it's too close to us. Well, and it's also it's also messy. I mean, it's messy. It's it's not the glamorous kind of thing as oh, there's a perp, there's a murder, let's solve the mystery, and then by the end of the story, it's all uh, resolved. Um, the only way, way you can resolve Alzheimer's is when somebody dies. I think it also takes people back to um, when you when you watch somebody with Alzheimer's move progress towards death you're watching them sort of devolve you're watching them go from being an adult person to kind of being more childlike yes, and, yes and but a powerful child a very powerful child yes. right and that and it really is it's this very sort of it brings you right back to the fact that we're all very human we all we all eventually grow old and die. And, and we don't like to talk about that, just like we don't like to talk about cancer or AIDS. Uh, I remember my um, literary agent telling me, she said, well, you know, you can write about serial killers. People will buy books about that. They'll buy books about horrific crimes. But nobody wants to buy a book about cancer or AIDS or Alzheimer's. And that's why New York does not want to see those, because we are all truly terrified of those things. And that's not what we want to address when we're trying to entertain ourselves uh, by reading a book. You've been writing for um, a long time. I believe 1987 was what I Yes, was... yes, I have been. It's, well, I guess that would make it 26 years now. <laughs> well, this was your um, maternity leave after having given birth to your son. Is that what I remember reading yes. somewhere? Uh, that was really how I uh, eased my way out of medicine. I was working as a doctor, and then um, I gave birth and was home for a couple of months, and my son was a very good napper. He would, I would put him down and he'd be asleep for two and a half hours. That was enough time to write maybe two pages. So my first book was written while uh, I was home with my very good sleeping son. And you're a very hardworking writer. You have written many, many books. I, I, am so, I was very impressed when I went and looked at your website to see all the books that you have written over the years, I think I've read maybe three or four of them, and I was realizing, oh, I, I have to catch up now. I haven't, I haven't, I mean, it's, but you're not very old, and somehow you've managed to just keep writing and writing and writing. <laughs> it's, you know, people think that I must be really productive, but all I really do is write a book a year. Um, and that I can manage. I can manage a book a year, but um, primarily because I'm forced to. Uh, my publisher wants a book a year, uh, and it's just a matter of longevity. If you keep doing that every year, you live long enough, it's going to look like you were, you know, you were writing like crazy. I think I have a pretty, um, it's a pretty relaxed schedule. I can turn in four pages a day and I'll be happy. And that takes up maybe six hours a day. Um, but I, that leaves a lot of time for other things like gardening and hanging out with my son on his farm and, and a lot of travel. So I could not ask for a better, really a better career. Well, and yet... I think you might be underselling yourself just a tad because I've I've interviewed many authors and there is also the traveling associated with promoting your book. Yeah. There are the readings that you do, um, and you and really in this day and age you have to be a self starter. Not only as that's a, true as somebody who sells your books, but also as somebody who writes. It is actually very difficult for anybody who's listening who thinks, oh, it's just four pages a day. <laughs> I mean, it's it is not easy to do that. It is focused. I've, I think I've always been focused um, since I, since I was a child. I mean, I remember that I would be reading a book and I wouldn't hear people calling me because I was so focused on the story. Uh, there are a couple tricks to being, you know, being able to turn a book turn, turn in a book a year, um, and my trick 
is primarily don't stop to edit. I write from beginning to end, and I, I see the flaws as I'm working on the book, but I always tell myself I can go back and fix that. Um, a lot of authors who can't seem to finish their books, it's because they keep editing, and they edit that first, the first 50 pages again and again. They never get beyond that. You have to learn to accept imperfection in your first draft. Learn that it's okay to write badly because nobody has to see that. And as long as you give yourself permission to write badly, at least you'll write. Um, and then after the first draft is done, I look back at it and I'm very depressed because I can see, you know, how, how bad it is. Uh, and then I just proceed to do the rewrites. And maybe about the third rewrite, it starts to look okay. And I don't turn in the books usually until about five rewrites later. Um, but it all comes from at least having something to work with and something to revise. And that requires finishing the first draft. Here on the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast, we've long recognized the link between health and wealth. Here to speak more on the topic is Tom Shepard of Shepard Financial. It is said a picture is worth a thousand words. If that is true, then what is the picture that describes your finances? Is it you in a deep hole? Is it you wildly riding a money roller coaster? Is it you chained to your job? Is it you walled off from your money? We know that picture is not the same as your vision. Your vision might be built on the idea that money should bring joy into the world. Or your vision might be that money should be used to enlighten and bring levity into existence. Or your vision might be that money should help break the chains of bondage that hold you back and hold you down so that you can pursue another better life. On the best of days, you dream about what life could be. The first step is to take a snapshot and use it to draw up blueprints for how you want it all to come together. Let us help you keep the vision in front of you and actually animate it. Like Shepherd Financial on Facebook, it is here we post our vision and images and share steps to encourage you to evolve with your money. Securities offered through LPL Financial, member FINRA SIPC. Investment advice offered through Flagship Harbor Advisors, a registered investment advisor. Flagship Harbor Advisors and Shepherd Financial are separate entities from LPL Financial. There was a time when the apothecary was a place where you could get safe, reliable medicines, carefully prepared by experienced professionals, coupled with care and attention, focused on you and your unique health concerns. Apothecary by Design is built around the forgotten notion that you don't just need your prescriptions filled, you need attention, advice, and individual care. Visit their website, apothecarybydesign.com, or drop by the store at 84 Marginal Way in Portland and experience pharmacy care the way it was meant to be. So what did your parents say to you once you finally went through medical school, became a doctor, and then decided, oh, I'm going to be a writer after all. Well, you know, I got the medical degree. That's what mattered to them. 
And it was something that they thought I could always fall back on. Um, my mother was really proud of me because she, she, she lived long enough to see my success. My dad, unfortunately, you know, got his Alzheimer's before he could appreciate that I had become uh, a writer. Uh, but my mother, um, <laughs> my mother who used to take me to horror films, and you've read my books, you, you know how scary they can be. Well, my mother would read every one of my books, and her comment was usually, it could have been scarier. <laughs> well, and that says something. That it, It's also interesting to me that your mother would bring you to horror films. Many people try to protect their children, and instead your mother was doing the opposite. Well, my mom, it's because she loved horror films. You know, she, her English was not that good because uh, she was an immigrant. But horror films, I think you need the least facility with the English language to understand what's going on. Um, the monster doesn't need to say a thing. You just need to, it's all visuals. So that's part of the reason she loved horror films. And my, my brother and I spent, I mean, we were really young and we were screaming in these movie theaters. This is before the, the ratings, the parental guidance ratings. So um, we saw a lot of movies that probably severely damaged me as a child. But when I look back on them, I try to analyze what made certain movies scary. Um, and I wrote, you know, the monster movies, they, you saw those, you got scared, you left, and that was fine. You didn't think about them anymore. The two scariest films I can remember, um, one of them was a movie called um, On the Beach, and it was about uh, the aftermath of nuclear war. And at the end of the movie, everybody's dead. All of humanity is dead. Oh, my God, that was an incredibly... That was an incredibly depressing thing for a child to watch because I sort of imagined that movies were a reflection of real life. And I kept watching the news about the nuclear testing and thinking, what is wrong with humanity? Why are we going towards this, you know, this destruction? Because that movie terrified me. But the other movie that had this really long um, effect on me was the original black and white version of Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Um, older people remember that. And the reason, if in case a lot of your listeners don't know what that movie is about, it's about these, these seed pods that come from outer space. And while you sleep, they take over your body. And your personality disappears, but you look exactly the way you are, and the seed pods have taken over your body. Um, and nobody can really see it except for those who are close to them. So you can go to bed one night and wake up, and mommy is no longer mommy. And no matter what you say, nobody believes you. Um, you know, I'm trying to think, why was that so scary? Because there was no violence in this film at all. But what it was a metaphor um, for as, as a child was um, disaffection. It was the people you love are no longer the people you love. It's, it's a metaphor for, you know, divorce, for somebody having an affair, for, for your parents no longer loving you. It was all the things that kids are afraid of. Um, and I think that that psychologically was, was pretty, pretty disturbing to a child. Well, it's also interesting because that that ends up happening with Alzheimer's, really. You know, that's absolutely true. I hadn't, you know, now that you say it, I'm thinking, well, I slapped myself in the face. Why didn't I not think of that? Um, but you're absolutely right. Um, it's the people you love are no longer the people that you think they are. It's also, you've talked about the, the Mephisto Club, and mm -hmm. you talked about this possibility that there are those walking amongst us who are not what they seem. Yes, that also kind of rings true with the whole people having they're supposed to they're supposed to be something but they're something else well i think it's a it's a fear of what really lies beneath the smiling face um and it 
that particular book uh, dealt with, I think, what really we would classify as sociopaths or psychopaths is the other term that some people use. People who seem friendly, they seem reliable, they seem like they're normal people, but underneath there's there's no empathy there. There is the possibility of violence. There's somebody who's going to be using you or abusing you uh, and yet smiling the whole time. Um, that's scary. And the question always is how many of those people are around us. You know, how, what percentage of people are sociopaths? I've, I've heard statistics that say maybe 10% uh, of us are, were there, and probably a lot of them are, are Wall Street bankers, I don't know. Um, you know, businessmen, uh, it takes a certain amount of heartlessness to get ahead. Well, and actually, I think that there's a very recent book that was written about the advantages of having a sociopathic personality. And, yeah, they become um, very successful. They do. They do. Actually, they said um, among doctors, surgeons tend to be very high on the list, which is not to ding surgeons because I have two siblings who are surgeons, so I don't think that they are this way. But, I mean, I think it crosses yeah. lots of different professions. It does, and you probably see them cluster in certain professions. I think the least number of sociopaths are going to be probably um, elementary school teachers and social workers. <laughs> They're probably, the, you know, it's probably like 0.1% of them are sociopaths, um, but those who become successful uh, financially, those who have to get ahead, those who will probably get there by stabbing other people in the back, yeah, that's going to be a higher number of sociopaths. All of this is very interesting because I think that what most of us fear them f- fear to some great degree is not really knowing, you know, that this idea that things are not as they seem, right. that this sense of groundlessness, um, and we've talked about this with other people who have come on the show before, that we all like to have some solidity to our lives. And what you explore in your books is the fact that there really isn't as much solidity as we even think. And now you're talking about Alzheimer's where, you know, all bets are off eventually. Well, I think that the heart of a mystery novel is that people are not what they seem. Uh, the killer is always disguised. You don't know who this killer is. And it's it's rooting through the various suspects and figuring out who has got something to hide. Um, and that that is, uh, I think we, we do that in, in everyday life as well. You know, who do you decide to marry? Did you marry a sociopath or did you marry that, you know, the, the, the beta social worker. <laughs> um, so we have to make these decisions and we have to use our own instincts, but sometimes we're wrong and sometimes we marry the wrong person and find out only too late. Well, I appreciate your coming in and talking to us today about so many different subjects about Alzheimer's and the work that you're doing to promote Alzheimer's um, research and fundraising for that. Also, the, um, the books that you've written, your experiences with being a writer over the span of many years now, and also your time spent in Maine. I think people would, um, I'm sure people listening to this will each come away with their own interesting individual take on our conversation. (laughs) So I appreciate you being here. Um, We've been speaking with Dr. Tess Gerritsen, who is an author and physician and also um, advocate for Alzheimer's research. Thank you very much. As a physician and small business owner, I rely on Marcy Booth from Booth, Maine, to help me with my own business and to help me live my own life fully. Here are a few thoughts from Marcy. While I usually take this time to talk about business and personal finance, today I would just like to say to all the people living with Alzheimer's and to their families, friends, and supporters that you are all inspirations. I join you in hoping that someday we will see an end to this horrible disease. My thoughts and prayers go out to all of you. I'm Marcy Booth. Let's talk about the changes you need. 
boothmain.com. This segment of the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour is brought to you by the following generous sponsors. Mike LePage and Beth Franklin of Remax Heritage in Yarmouth, Maine. Honesty and integrity can take you home. With Remax Heritage, it's your move. Learn more at rheritage.com. Using recycled sails collected from sailors and sailing communities around the world, Seabags designs and manufactures bags, totes, and accessories in Maine on Portland's working waterfront. From the best-selling classic Navy Anchor Tote to fresh new designs, Seabags offers retired sails another life by turning them into handmade, one-of-a-kind, nautical-inspired pieces. Please visit the Seabags store in Portland or Freeport or go to www.seabags.com to browse their unique collection. Many listeners of the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and podcast have themselves dealt with um, family members needing care at the end of their lives, and many listeners, I'm sure, have had family members with dementia. Our next guest is Leon Duff. He is a board member um, at large with the Hospice Volunteers of the Waterville area. He's also a past president of the Hospice Volunteers of Waterville area and many other things. But most importantly, he um, had a wife with Alzheimer's and cared for her for 10 years before her um, passing several years ago. I first read about Mr. Duff's story in the book A Healing Touch, True Stories of Life, Death, and Hospice, edited by Richard Russo, which is a fundraiser for the hospice volunteers of Waterville area. Thanks for coming in and telling us about your story and the work that you're doing. Well, thank you so much for having me. Uh, It is a pleasure to share my experience, and uh, hopefully, hopefully, I c- can encourage other people to become engaged in helping uh, other people. Well, and that's an important thing to talk about first, which is that you've been involved in helping people pretty much your entire life, but especially your adult life. You've had more than forty-five years in education and twenty-two years spent as a superintendent in school systems. That's true. And uh, even in education, if you're not in it to make a difference, to help the students grow and to influence the parents in the involvement of the students, uh, then I don't know why you're there. (laughs) But the same kind of applies uh, to uh, taking care of someone uh, who, in my case, my wife Anne, uh, had Alzheimer's disease, and I'll uh, g- tell that story uh, uh, a little bit. All right. Well, let's start with first a little bit of your background. You are from a small town up near Holton in the county. You are the ninth of ten children, mm-hmm. and I'd like to hear you elaborate a little bit on that. Okay. Uh, I was uh, born and brought up on a potato farm in Derry uh, in Hodgton. As you mentioned, nine of ten children, and there were seven boys and three girls. And what's interesting about uh, our family, I think, most is that nine out of the ten of us have post-high school degrees. And my parents had a ninth-grade education. 
They were born in 1896 and 1897. Uh, I went to a one-room schoolhouse, uh, which we all had to walk to. Uh, there were anywhere from 30 to 35 students, one teacher, and all grades from kindergarten through the eighth grade. And uh, then uh, I went to Ricker Classical Institute in Holton, uh, which is a private uh, school, and uh, became acquainted with Anne uh, in a geometry class. And uh, this was our sophomore year, and she said uh, to me, do you have any brothers and sisters? And I said, well, yes. I have six brothers and three sisters. And she said, uh, how can you remember all their names? <laughs> I thought that was pretty funny. So we dated uh, pretty much off and on for uh, during our junior and senior years. And then uh, Anne's uh, father was a graduate of Colby College. And, of course, he wanted her to go to Colby, and uh, her older brother w was at Colby at the time. So she went off to Colby, and I went off to Bob Jones University in Greenville, South Carolina, because some of my siblings after the war uh, went there for a college degree. After about a year and a half, she uh, decided she wanted to become a nurse, and Colby didn't offer uh, an RN degree. So she transferred to uh, UConn, University of Connecticut, and uh, in a five-year program, because that was required uh, by UConn to get a bachelor's degree and an RN. So after I graduated, majoring in education, which I switched in my junior year. Uh, and <clears throat> I said, you know, if I could get a job in the New Haven area, uh, then we could get married. And so I applied uh, to a couple of uh, districts there and uh, uh, I was offered a position in New Haven, Connecticut, and we went to the beach in East Haven and after I had signed the contract, and uh, we set a date to be married, uh, which we did. And uh, then Anne finished her degree work, and I was teaching at Bassett Junior High in New Haven, uh, which was a 96% black school and 4% poor whites and whatever. That was a challenge. Growing up in Aroostook County, going to a private university, and then ending up in... Uh, in a junior high school that was uh, really challenging. And um, she finished up her work. Uh, she did some filling in uh, at the hospital there, Yale New Haven. 
and uh, and then she became pregnant, and we had a, a child in the second year there. How old was Anne when you first started to notice that things weren't quite as sharp when it came to her memory? She was about 57, and uh, we had already experienced her father, uh, who had dementia. Uh, they were calling it back then uh, hardening of the arteries, uh, as I recall. But it was clearly Alzheimer's. And his siblings all died with dementia and her grandfather on her father's side. So it's clear that it's in the genes. Uh, and so she was, uh, uh, we were having difficulty, and then I had her go in for testing, and she was about 57, and, um, and the diagnosis was pretty clear. And so I knew what I was into, and she knew what she was into because we had uh, experienced that with her father. And uh, it, uh, it was challenging for her, and her mind went first. Couldn't remember uh, an example. She uh, drove to Waterville, which is only six miles away, and uh, when I got home in the evening, she looked at me and she said, I had a terrible experience today. And I said, what's that? She said, I was in Waterville and I had finished what I needed to do there and I couldn't remember how to get home. And soon after that, we were up north and uh, and we were driving two vehicles uh, back home from Bangor uh, to Vassalboro. And I said, well, you just follow me. And uh, so we got down to about Albion, and she's falling behind. It's early evening, and she's falling behind and falling behind. And so I signal, pull over. She pulls up behind me, and... Uh, and I said, uh, you got a problem, you need to be closer to me so that I can see you in my rearview mirror. She said, well, um, I kind of had a blackout, and uh, so I slowed down. I'm not, I'm not really sure. I know I'm supposed to be following you, but I had a little blackout, so I st started uh, slowing down. Well, that was a pretty much the end of her driving. But her mind went first. Physically, she was still reasonably normal. And uh, she used to do the uh, keep the checkbook and all that sort of stuff. And uh, she approached me uh, and then said, uh, uh, I can't remember how to write the checks. And so, you know, little by little, uh, it was, it was uh, getting worse. I uh, was working full-time as a superintendent, and you know, that's a, at least 60-hour-a-week job. And uh, <clears throat> so I had some friends who uh, volunteered to come and visit her during the day. Um, and 
then I got involved with an agency, Helping Hands, uh, in the area, and I started with part-time help, someone coming like 10 o'clock in the morning uh, until 2 o'clock in the afternoon, uh, help her get lunch and whatever, and, and then she'd be okay until I got home. Uh, that lasted a little while. She didn't relate to some of the, the people from Helping Hands. Uh, and finally, there was a young gal. She was probably 20, uh, graduated from high school, had taken the course at Helping Hands, and, uh, and then married. And uh, she came, and Anne just blossomed right up to her. And so she was with me uh, part-time for quite a long time. And uh, she got pregnant, had a baby, and that was a miracle for Anne because she would bring the baby in, and <clears throat> when, when she would walk in the house, it was just a whole different world. And she would put the baby in her arms, uh, sitting down, of course, and it was like she had gone to heaven. It was just wonderful. The goal of the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour is to help make connections between the health of the individual and the health of the community. The goal of Ted Carter Inspired Landscapes is to deepen our appreciation for the natural world. Here to speak with us today is Ted Carter. A world lives within you. No one else can bring you news of this inner world. That's something by John O'Donohue and Anam Kara. That struck me particularly strongly the other day when I was reading this book. I create places in the landscape that are looks within places, places where deep introspection calls to you. I also create spaces that are looks without places. They're places of projection. And as you look out into the landscape from a particular place, it's all about what can be in my life. Where am I going? What's ahead of me? I try to honor the spirit of the land and the spirit of the human being that inhabits that land and try to really create spaces that allow you both of those perspectives. They're quite different and it's part of the human journey. And I think that the land and the landscape can really honor that journey through careful placement and careful consideration. You too can have a landscape that really speaks to who you really are and what you really want in this world. I'm Ted Carter, and if you'd like to contact me, I can be reached at tedcarterdesign.com. The Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast understands the importance of the health of the body, mind, and spirit. Here to talk about the health of the body are Travis Bullier and Jim Graterix of Premier Sports Health, a division of Black Bear Medical. What are you doing here? I'm Travis, and I'm here to install the Philips Lifeline you ordered for your home. What is that thing? It's to make sure when you fall again that you don't lay there on the floor for hours before someone can come and help you. Your daughter said that you both agreed it was a good idea. I don't know anything about it. You're coming at me completely cold with this. This is a common occurrence for us at Black Bear Medical, but it makes this even more of a reason to look into a personal emergency response system like the Philips Lifeline. 
Designed for falls and other health issues where access to a phone isn't possible, the Philips Lifeline provides peace of mind to families with someone suffering from all types of medical conditions, including Alzheimer's. With memory, thinking, and behavior all changing, this emergency response system can help someone you love who may fall and have no sense of where they are or who can help them. Visit us at blackbearmedical.com for more information on this and our over 900 other products to help keep you safe, secure, and independent. Black Bear Medical, it's your life, define it your way. Now, Mr. Duff, they call Alzheimer's the long goodbye. So this process started when Anne was 57. About, yeah. And you took care of her for 10 years. What was that like to know that she had had a father and other relatives that had died of Alzheimer's, that this this disease was going to be what it was and that it wasn't going to get any better and that you were going to lose this woman you had known Mm -hmm. since um, your high school years? Well, I realized I'd already lost her because she couldn't communicate uh, with me. She couldn't call me by name. Uh, and she would be puzzled if one of the, our kids came to visit about who is this. And uh, so I lost her early, and I knew it. And I had a, we had experienced that with her father as well. And to what degree she really understood that, I can't tell you because they couldn't communicate that. Uh, but I kept her at home uh, as, as long as I could. Uh, I got hospital you know, bed sheets and things like that because there were accidents and whatever. And then finally, I said, I cannot uh, do this anymore. And, uh, and one of my daughters and I explored some nursing homes. And Anne's mother, who was about 91 at the time, still living uh, independently at home in Holton, um, begged me to put her in the nursing home up there. She said, then I can go and visit. Well, that's three hours away for me, and I want to say two things about that. That was an absolute excellent decision that I made to put her up there for her mother and for me because I was worn out. I, I dropped 30 pounds uh, taking care of her at home. And, uh, you know, the emotional impact is I didn't care if I ate or not. Uh, those are, you know, routine kinds of things. It, it wasn't that I was in denial. It's that it's too big a weight. And so uh, giving uh, care to someone who has dementia is very different than taking care of someone who just has, let's say, Hodgkin's disease or something, because I've had experience with that as, as well. Can, um, I, can I read something yeah. from this book? Sure. This book is um, A Healing Touch, True Stories of Life, Death, and Hospice. And this is um, a fundraiser that 
Richard Russo, Pulitzer Prize-winning author and friend of yours, wrote to benefit the hospice volunteers of the Waterville area. This is a story that he tells about you. When he was 10, one of his many jobs was driving the tractor. And one particular autumn found him harrowing a field long after dark. It was bitter cold, frightening work for a kid all alone on a tractor traveling over unlevel terrain. The tractor's headlamp shone off into black woods that surrounded the sloping field on three sides, occasionally locating bright eyes among the trees. A cat's eyes, a dog's, a deer's, a bear's, No, probably not a bear's, but maybe. If it was a bear, could he outrun it? No. Even trying would risk death or dismemberment. You don't jump down from a tractor in the dark, not when it's trailing a harrow. Lee doesn't remember how much of the field he'd worked when the pin that attached the harrow to the tractor either broke or popped free, but he heard it go and felt the harrow detach. He also knew that it was pointless to search in the pitch darkness for a pin that was probably broken anyway. He knew his father would not be pleased, but what choice did he have? There was nothing to do but drive the tractor home. He remembers thinking, I can't reverse what's happened. I can't control it. It's gone. When he got home, his father was more than displeased. You don't come home with a job undone, he explained. Life demanded that you be resourceful. Problems had solutions. He should have found a way. He'd not only failed, he'd done the one unforgivable thing. He hadn't tried. This is a very interesting thing to be a 10-year-old and being told that there's always got to be a solution. And then to be, several decades later, a man whose wife is diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease and not be able to find a solution. There isn't a solution. There is a process that you have to go through and hope for the best ending. My father was one who said, uh, uh, fix it up, wear it out, make it do or do without, which means that instilled uh, in me was look at the situation and find a way to address it, to resolve it if you can. Uh, I think my upbringing... um, Uh, was extremely valuable in times of crisis because it is a crisis. Even in my work as a superintendent, there were times when there was crisis and how do you go about uh, dealing with it? And uh, one of the things that I think I do is listen and ask questions and ask for help. And uh, that usually uh, gets uh, a much better uh, resolution to the issue. And uh, it reminds me that uh, a person with dementia often mixes up days and hours and whatever. You know, well, today is Sunday. We've got to go someplace. Well, it's Wednesday. It doesn't make any difference to the dementia person, and I have seen the caregivers try to correct that. Well, I learned that it's okay to lie. 
because it doesn't make any difference. In, in fact, it only aggravates because they're being corrected and corrected and corrected. And I've used that in my hospice work uh, very, very effectively. And I think that that is, is helpful. Well, let's talk about your hospice work and about volunteering, because I know that this is something that has been very important to you. Um, just for example, we know that 37,000 Mainers are struggling with Alzheimer's disease, and that's just one group that needs care. There are lots of other people that need help, including the caregivers of the people who need help. You've been not only the president of the hospice volunteers of the Waterville area, you also have served on uh, community impact teams for the Greater Waterville Area United Way and also the Kennebec Behavioral Health Foundation Board and the Finance Committee. So you're somebody who really believes in volunteering. Why is volunteering so important, and what type of difference can people make? Well, uh, I kind of adopted uh, the motto that as long as I am able, I want to make a difference. And... And so if I have some experience, background, talent, or whatever that I can give, then I want to do that. I was invited to join hospice uh, uh, probably a year after Anne died, just before she turned 66 years old. And by the way, her mother died about a year before Anne died, and we did not tell her because it didn't make any difference, and we didn't want to add anything to uh, her stress. And by the way, an important thing as a volunteer is you need to be very cautious about what you talk about in the presence of someone who has dementia because they can't respond but I don't know whether that they process it in any way or not. So you don't do that. All of the chit-chat is fun, friendly, and caring. Uh, the executive director of hospice at the time, uh, who knew Anne, uh, invited me. And what attracted me uh, really to hospice was the support groups that they run for people who have lost a loved one uh, primarily uh, or someone who was going through a, a process at the present time. Those are dynamite and effective. And uh, uh, I took the training and uh, and to be sure I understood uh, in all of that. It, it is absolutely essential uh, to, in my opinion, to make a difference in whatever way it is, whether it's fixing a garage door for uh, an old lady, which I did yesterday, or it's staying overnight, uh, as I did a few weeks ago, uh, for a man who has severe Hodgkin's disease. Um, and, and I just continue to do that. 
And United Way is also a group. Uh, I serve on one of the three community impact teams which recommends the uh, support, financial support, for agencies and whatever around the area. And in United Way, for example, does a great job of, of making connections between groups to avoid duplication and things like that. And then Kennebec Behavioral Health, of course, serves uh, clients who are in desperate need, uh, usually. And so uh, serving on the boards is just making kind of policy decisions, but uh, I, I see that as well. I have a quote uh, that I want to give to you. Uh, and it's my definition of a volunteer, and I didn't originate this, I don't know where I got it, but it's stuck in my head and I use it a lot. A volunteer is a person who will do for nothing what most people won't do for anything. Well, Mr. Duff, we know that your time is very valuable, and we're very glad that you've spent time talking with us today. We encourage people who are listening to um, go online, learn more about the hospice volunteers of the Waterville area, learn more about the Greater Waterville Area United Way, or, also, or perhaps the Kennebec Behavioral Health Foundation. Also, um, I was very moved by the book edited by Richard Russo, A Healing Touch, True Stories of Life, Death, and Hospice, which is a fundraiser for hospice volunteers of the Waterville area. So I encourage our listeners to um, find a copy of this book, read your story and other stories like it. And thank you so much for all the work that you're doing and all the volunteer work that you've um, made the world a brighter place by being a part of. Well, if I can reach that goal, I will be very pleased, and thank you so much for having me. You have been listening to the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast, show number 114, Alzheimer's. Our guests have included Dr. Tess Gerritsen and Leon Duff. For more information on our guests and extended interviews, visit doctrlisa.org. The Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast is downloadable for free on iTunes. For a preview of each week's show, Sign up for our e-newsletter and like our Dr. Lisa Facebook page. Follow me on Twitter and Pinterest, and read my take on health and well-being on the Bountiful blog. We love to hear from you, so please let us know what you think of the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour. We welcome your suggestions for future shows. Also, let our sponsors know that you have heard about them here. We are privileged that they enable us to bring the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour to you each week. This is Dr. Lisa Belisle. I hope that you have enjoyed our Alzheimer's show. Thank you for allowing me to be a part of your day. May you have a bountiful life. The Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast is made possible with the support of the following generous sponsors. Maine Magazine, Marcy Booth of Booth, Maine, Apothecary by Design, Premier Sports Health, a division of Black Bear Medical, Dr. John Herzog of Orthopedic Specialists, Sea Bags, Mike LePage and Beth Franklin of Remax Heritage, Ted Carter, Inspired Landscapes, and Tom Shepard of Shepard Financial. The Dr. Lisa Radio Hour is recorded in the studio of Maine Magazine at 75 Market Street, Portland, Maine. Our executive producers 
are Kevin Thomas and Dr. Lisa Belial. Audio production and original music by John C. McCain. Our assistant producer is Leanne Wiemet. Our online producer is Katie Kelleher. Become a subscriber of Dr. Lisa Belial on iTunes. See the Dr. Lisa website or Facebook page for details. Summaries of all our past shows can be found at doctorlisa.org.